Hello everyone, Stucky here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Welcome back to an extra special episode that has a couple announcements in here from the very beginning that I'm really excited to share with you all because we have several big things that are happening. First off, just getting things out of the way, make sure that you get this month's book club pick because it's on presidential scandals and it is going to be a spicy one. I can tell you that much. Also, if you haven't checked out the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel, we have a lot of fun episodes happening right now over there. Um, The link is in the little podcast description if you're interested. And that channel has really increased over the past several weeks. There's been a lot of growth. So really get in on that. And last but not least, the most exciting one of all, our next trip is announced and it is to Florence and Rome in Italy. Oh, and because we already have this trip that's upcoming here for Japan, we wanted to make sure that we gave people plenty of time in order to go ahead and book this because, well, obviously people are going to need to prepare. This This is going to be... Oh, sorry. Didn't mean to cut you off, but this trip is, you know, to Italy in one of its peak seasons. So it is a little bit more expensive than Japan, but we really wanted to give people the chance if they were interested to be able to do it. So we booked it like almost a year out. Almost a year out. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to end up being in May and we're really excited to take everyone there because this is during a time that is one of the more expensive points in Italy in one of the most visited places on earth. It is pricier than the Japan trip, but it is something that we still have a early bird special that we did everything we possibly could to lower the cost as much as we could. So if you are one of the first 12 people that signs up, which you can do so in the description of this podcast episode, then for $27.99, you're going to be able to secure one of the first 12 spots. And well, we're going to be having what, like a six day adventure there? It's going to be a lot of fun. Last time the trip booked out in less than three weeks. So I'm just going to give like fair warning. It might fill up really quickly because people are already booking it. So if you were interested in looking at that, they do like a 25% down payment and then the rest will be due 60 days before we leave. So next March, March of 2024. So you get a lot of time. So if this is something you're really interested in, we will have a link in the description for you to sign up. So go check it out. Exactly. And I can't wait to go on even more adventures with all of you here in the future. We're going to be having a lot of fun. And now speaking of fun things, I think it's time we go ahead and get into today's episode which I'm going to say the word fun very arbitrarily here because we're talking about something that is pretty dark, but in my opinion, still something that is very cool because we're going to be talking about a very complex character, which actually that's something that I've really liked here the past couple weeks that we've been going into. Ever since we did the whole thing on the YouTube channel, Gabby, with Cleopatra and now Queen Jinga, like the African Queen series, I have really wanted to take a look at more complex characters in history that are not clean. Because how many times have I looked at you over the course of one of these episodes and I've said, hey, now we're talking about something in history and obviously this is not clean because that's really history as a whole. It's not a clean subject. It gets really messy. But the thing is with these characters, they're not villains, not heroes. They're flawed human beings with all of the great and awful things that come with that. And so I figured that we should talk about the story of Queen Ravalona I of Madagascar, an individual that is known in history as the Mad Queen of Madagascar, but I would call her mad in two senses of the word. One, as a cruel tyrant, and the other in that, dang, she was like mad awesome. She did some amazing things to bring the country into the modern day. Again, very complex figure. But I think in order to talk about that, we need to go into a little bit of the backstory of this. So Ravalona I, if you're looking at it from a more Western perspective, at least how she was known in the world at the time, she was called the female Caligula, which, Gabby, we've done some shorts. Didn't he fight the ocean? Yeah. But also a lot of it was potentially exaggerated just to make him sound crazier than he was. Exactly. is that what they did to her? That's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it, because she was extremely cruel and vindictive and a tyrant. But simultaneously, a number of the things that were said about her are possibly exaggerated, or in this case, she did things for specific reasons. Like one of the theories behind Caligula in the first place is that he ordered his troops to attack the ocean in order to embarrass them, like as a thing just to exert and show his power, like I could make you do something stupid if I wanted to. Here, do this. Just something that really demonstrates the power that one would have over the humans at their disposal. So. She is called that in two senses of the word. One as actually being crazy 
and the other because she was really that powerful and people hated her to a degree that she very possibly had things that were made up about her. So it's going to be a little bit of a difficult time going through a lot of this, and I try to be as careful as I possibly could when talking about this. This is a very famous ruler, a cruel one, the ruler of Madagascar who possibly killed anywhere between 30 to 50% of the entire population of the island. Yet simultaneously, over the course of her rule, she managed to keep her country independent. She would repeatedly defeat the forces of combined efforts of the English and the French, and she would instigate one of the first industrial revolutions that was seen outside of Europe. She was a conqueror, she was a protector, and she was a lunatic all at the same time. Oh, and other little detail. She did not start out a royalty at all. She was a commoner. Okay, when you said she killed 30 to 50% of the entire population, her population? Are we talking her people? Her people and the people of the island of Madagascar. She was called the Queen of Madagascar, but to clarify, and this is a very specific detail that needs to be known, she did not control the entirety of the island. She controlled the majority of it. I think something along the lines of 80% of it by the time that her reign was done. So theoretically, she could have just killed off the other 20% and then... um. Some of her people fighting them? Yes, yes. Is that essentially it? Or did she actually execute her She people? also executed a lot of her own people. And we're going to get into that as to why for how she did it, because it was all tools that she used in order to maintain power. Interesting. Right. So I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself when I talk about that. We need to go into a little bit of background of Madagascar itself, just to kind of set the stage here. In the Indian Ocean, there is an island called Madagascar that is situated off the southeast coast of Africa. Now, this is an island that for centuries has been known as this very rich, biodiverse hotspot. And history would oftentimes look at this place as being a beautiful, diverse ecosystem, a kind of paradise on Earth, or at the very least to Europeans that were exploring in the region, a valuable stopping point for trading expeditions, whether across the coast of Africa or especially in early history as a stopping point on the way to get to. Asia, like for Indonesia, the Spice Islands, these kinds of things. India, a lot of it, it ties to India and how important it was. Much of Madagascar was populated by internal migration. You had a large number of different groups of people that before the beginning of the 16th century had arrived there. But politically, the island would pretty much be fragmented for centuries. Most of the nearly 20 ethnic groups that would make up modern Madagascar and the Malagasy population, they didn't have a real form of national consciousness or like an idea of a nation of Madagascar until you started to see newer political ideas that come from abroad and begin to spread throughout the island. There was a number of different written European accounts from the 16th to 17th century that when they talk about it, there's no real large state or empire. It's all these different tribes that are constantly fighting one another for power, for resources, for any number of reasons that you'd be fighting yourself, much in the same way as you'd see in other places. If anything, Madagascar is an island I would almost call a little India, pretty much. Or, in the case of Indonesia, since most of like the population, when we say Malagasy, it was much closer to Indonesia and like that region in terms of its people and population versus Africa. So, we consider... Madagascar, like a part of Africa, I guess, even though it's an island off the coast, but its people are way more closely related to further in Asia, like around the Spice Islands. The only thing I really, truly can tell you about Madagascar is the biodiversity. Yes, which likes to also move it, move movie, it a lot. But I haven't seen the movies. <laughs> then so. you didn't just get the reference that I gave by saying yes, and they move it, move it a lot. Wait, what do you mean? <laughs> the lemurs, the lemurs of Madagascar, you know, like I like to move it, move it. I've heard this song. I did not know there were lemurs involved. Oh, my gosh. Okay, yeah, the lemurs of Madagascar, and that's a whole other thing here. Um, dang, I had so many other puns in here, and I'm realizing that the more that I say, the cringier it's going to sound coming from me at this point. I'm excited. Do it. Not Do that, it. Not that that has ever stopped <laughs> me before, to be fair. I, I, I get it. But okay. Things would end up changing for Madagascar, right? The accounts, as I said, from the Europeans here prior to this had said how there were no real big empires at the time. Hell, in many of the places, they didn't even seem to have a written language. It was largely oral tradition that kept the history of the island. 
And even in the recent records that they had of the time, there wasn't any oral tradition of a larger empire. But it would change because among all the different tribes and kingdoms that were fighting for power, there was one kingdom known as the Marina Kingdom or the Imarina Kingdom. And this was founded towards the end of the 16th century in the swampy Ikopa Valley of the Central Plateau. And in the 18th century, the Imarina was divided among four different fighting kings that were constantly trying to take over one, an, uh, like one another. And one of them, which has a name that I'm going to read the notes for, because I am going to mispronounce this and I know that I will, Adrianonum Poinamarina which I am still probably butchering. This is the guy who would reign from 1787 until 1810, and he would reunite the kingdom around 1797. When he did this, he gave the state uniform laws. He gave it a proper administration. He sold slaves to the French on the coast. He would use the guns that he got from this trade in order to conquer his neighbors. And under this ruler, which I'm just going to call Adrianum because his full name I will mispronounce every single time I try to say it. Marina ended up being divided into a series of different classes. You had the ruling noble class, the Adriana, a class of commoners called the Hova, and a slave class called the Endivo. So King Adrianum, he was in favor of Western teaching. He saw the power and potential that it could bring to his kingdom and he tried to open up the country. But when he did this, it brought a lot of trouble from the traditionalists and the priests and other kind of nobles that were at his court that didn't want outside interference, naturally, because that is something that is going to end up happening in history. So later, the king's uncle would end up trying to assassinate him, but it got saved. His, his life, not the assassination attempt. His yeah, life got saved. Like, I should have been way more saved. He yeah. was assassinated. That would have been a really interesting way to word that. That would have been a terrible way to freeze things around for me here. But yes, his life got saved by the intervention, as the story goes, of one of the local tribesmen who warned him that there was a conspiracy afoot and that this was, it was all going down. So since his life got saved, he was incredibly humbled by this act. And he decided that he was going to adopt the tribesman's daughter, like Ranavalona, as a woman who would be the bride of his son. Like, basically, I, I want to thank you, so I'm going to take your daughter to marry him to my son so that your daughter will be queen, basically. So they'd be throat them. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So betrothed them here. And then Ravalona would, bring, would uh, be brought into his court in order to marry his son, but she would be the first of one of 12 wives, I think, or was 11? Was she one of 12 or was it her and 12 additional others? Kind of fumbling and remembering what it was specifically at this point. But basically, there was a lot of other wives, and she was going to be the primary wife. The, the first wife? Yes. The important one. Correct. Correct. Because in many societies that have polygamy, the first wife that you marry, that is the important one. Others could theoretically become favorite, but the first wife was always supposed to be the primary wife they could and the most important. They favorite. Yes. He's known her the longest. Well... In many cases, it doesn't matter, and we're going to get into why it doesn't matter for her, because it would prove to be a little bit of a problem. Did she kill all the other wives? We're going to get into it. Go run a Valona. Run a Valona. <laughs> okay. Slay, queen. Oh, she slays a lot. Yeah, yes, we're going to be getting into that. I know what I got from this. See, as we said before, King Adrianum was in favor of Western teachings for his kingdom. He, he wanted outside help and interference, effectively, in order to develop his nation. And his son had the same kind of ideas. So after this whole assassination attempt, and after she gets married to the king's son, the king had left his son with effectively a single goal. The sea will be the boundary of my rice field. In other words, he wanted his son to conquer the rest of the island of Madagascar and unite it under him to create a powerful and strong state. But this was not going to happen, at least not under him. Radama I, as the son would be known, he did ally himself with the British governor of the nearby island of Mauritius, and this was Sir Robert Farquhar. And in order to prevent reoccupation of the East Coast by the French, Farquhar supported Radama's annexation of the area by supplying him with weapons and advisors and giving him the title King of Madagascar. At the same time, Radama agreed to cooperate with Britain's new campaign to end the slave trade. 
because by this time, mind you, Britain was moving to end slavery. That was the big thing that they were trying to do. And not only were they ending the slave trade for themselves, but they were trying to put a stop to it globally so that no other power would be selling people into slavery. So in 1817, he captured the East Coast town of Tamatev, from which he would launch annual expeditions against the coastal populations. He would eventually, from this, conquer almost the entire East Coast, the northern part of the island, and most of the two large Saklava kingdoms. Only the southern part of the west remained independent, and the French would retain only the small island of Saint-Marie. In addition, Radama would invite European workers, the London Missionary Society would come in and spread Christianity, and over time, they would start to adopt more and more Western practices, including the Latin alphabet, to be used for the Malagasy language. His wife, though, didn't like this. See, the relationship between Ranavalona and the prince is not exactly a good one. Their thoughts and their decisions were constantly clashing in regards to policy, and thus Prince Radama started to give less and less attention to his first wife finding that she was um, just too difficult and noisy. She constantly was fighting him on issues, and maybe it is because, having grown up as a commoner, she was significantly closer in touch with the ideas of the Malagasy people, the ancestors, the old traditions, because even though the king should theoretically be the representation of it, as a king, you're going to be more politically open to the realities of the situations that you have to face. But considering what she grew up with, no, political realism, that wasn't something that mattered to her. It was the sanctity of the people itself, their old ideas, their traditions. That is what was sacred. And so she fought him tooth and nail about any kind of adoption of Western practices. She hated it. And over time, their relationship would weaken and their marriage ended up being childless. So despite the fact that she was the first wife and should have had first pick to be able to produce an heir, she never would. At least, not from him. What do you mean? We're going to get into that because this is a bit... Does I'm, she kill him? Not, he sounds like he, sh you know, he sounds a little bit, what was it? Overly tumultuous and noisy? Well, that was how she was described. I know, so I think, I think he sounds... Like overly him. tumultuous and noisy. I think. <laughs> fair, fair. It was a very rocky marriage. It wasn't something that worked out for him. But it doesn't really say anything about her killing him but he would not actually survive. Oh, oh no. Yeah. In 1828, King Radama would die at the age of 35, this being due to a debilitating illness, possibly from having contracted syphilis. From one of the 12 wives? Well, who knows? At that point, really anything could happen, and I cannot say for certain. A few of Radama's officers had hidden the news of his death until two days after his demise in order to replace the king's throne with his nephew, Prince Rakatobe. No sooner did this plan come to the knowledge of Ranavalona, who immediately then moved to gather her supporters to bring down their agenda, with her next goal being to become the immediate successor of the throne, kicking off a succession crisis. Were there historically female leaders? Of this place? Yeah. There were some in the case of the tribes. We have to remember, prior to the kingdom of Imarina, there was no real large kingdom in Madagascar. So while you could have some local tribes and potentially some powerful women, there had been no large state prior to this that was even close to the size that the Marina Kingdom was. This one was the first one. And there's a weird little detail, and this is why I had to specify that whole thing about maybe her having a child, but it not being his. Legally, it would be considered his. Because it's a weird detail, but in the Malagasy tradition, any children that his wife would have after his death would still be considered Ramadas, even though he was already dead. So upon this knowledge, Rakatobe's mother, knowing that she was taking, like the, the queen here was taking a lover in order to produce an heir, she immediately tried to arrange to have Ranavalona killed, but failed. Wait, when you said they couldn't produce an heir, I thought they were infertile, not that they wouldn't do anything to produce childless marriage they hated each other honestly that changes everything yeah no they they really hated each other and so it wasn't going to work out but after the king was dead well she did take 
at least one lover that we know of, though she would simultaneously have that lover executed for potentially having cheated on her. Understandably. Um, so, yeah, that was something that occurred. And then de- she's just like me for real. <laughs> and then declaring herself as queen of Madagascar in 1829, she immediately killed all of her rivals, including her nephew, Rakatobe. She also, well, I guess it would be her nephew-in-law, but her nephew. She also then locked Rakatobe's mother away and starved her to death. What? Yes. Now, there, mind you, there is a reason for this, and I have to specify. Well, she arranged to have her killed, so I understand, but why, why would you starve to her death? to death? Very important question. It's actually really good that you asked that. Per, I'm pretty sure this is either the Malagasy tradition, or this is per the tradition of the kingdom of Imerina. But you weren't allowed to spill royal blood, oh. so which means you couldn't have your head cut off. You couldn't have your throat slit. You couldn't have any of these things. It had to be a alternate way. And strangulation is possibly still too violent. Thus, you died a much more slow and horrible death by being locked away and starving to death. They couldn't just drown her. Well, actually, I think drowning is one of the worst ways to go. But I feel like starvation takes so it does. long. Yeah. You might as well just drown. Ooh. Yeah. Did she at least get a choice or did she just go? She this just is did it to her. <gasps> hey, everyone. It's like who you here. And before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Here's what you have to understand, and this is what you would see from the very beginning with Rana Valona. She would employ terrible methods to punish, to execute, to do anything to her rivals, specifically because it was through her terror that she helped maintain political power. And that's oh, something that she would do. I understand that. It's um, very reminiscent of Wu Zeshan, I guess, yeah. where they had to be extremely brutal in order to maintain... Authority, yes. Exactly. So I, I understand. It's just that is probably one of the worst ways I've heard oh, anyone absolutely. executed mm-hmm. in any of these podcast episodes. Like we've done some insane episodes and dumb ways to die but this i think takes a lot of the um horror and just pushes it in one story i can't remember the specific word for it but you're familiar with what being interred is as a punishment right no but i'm guessing i'm about to find out uh imagine putting someone in a hole basically like you have a building and one of the rooms has no windows anything like that and it's sealed on all sides and then from the door, you would brick over the door and seal it with mortar, trapping all air, all anything inside. It will never be opened again. So that means that depending upon the size of it, you will either suffocate or starve to death first, depending on the op- uh, options. You know, I've had that exact same dream. Um, oh. Repetitively as a fun little nightmare. And now... Well, I have the name of it. Yeah. So when they talk about people being buried inside of walls, oh, that's stop. what they're talking no, about. I am so claustrophobic. I'm about to go kayaking in a mine in like four days. And you, t- you, you decide now. 
It's the greatest time to tell me that. Well, I mean, to be, it was used as a punishment at, at different points here, but it's not happening to you. How do you know? How do you know? You're about to take me into a mine to kayak. Now I have to be nice to you. <laughs> I'm not going to brick you up in a wall, Gabby. I don't or a know. cave for that matter. Trust no one. Look at Rana Valona's mother-in-law nephew. Nephew's mother. Look at that lady. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it really does not end well for her. But uh, Rana Valona would do a lot more than just that. A, a lot more, as I said. The terror was a political tool that she would specifically use to help unite the kingdom under her rule and to crush any rival royal family members or really anyone that could challenge her authority. See, the thing is, Rana Valona, from the very start, was a very staunch anti-European. Her next mission afterwards was to wipe out the reforms that were carried out by her husband and tried, which was, you know, the efforts to modernize the nation. She expelled the European merchants, the teachers, the diplomats, any trade deals that existed between Britain and France, canceled. It was done. She also then banned the teaching of Christianity in Madagascar. In 1835, she would declare, whoever breaks the laws of my kingdoms will be put to death, whoever he may be. See, thing is, she was very intolerant, and we're going to get into a little bit more of the details later, but I'm going to be skipping ahead to cover this. She would adopt the harshest methods possible for those that were practicing Christianity as like an outside influence and an insult to the native Malagasy beliefs. The Christians would be beaten, they would be tortured, they would be starved, pushed off the cliffs, poisoned, beheaded. Their relatives were forced to watch the executions either in an effort to convert them or afterwards as just an initial punishment before they themselves would be executed. Between 1837 and 1856, the queen ordered the detention and persecution of at least 100 Christians in just these ways, which over the course of 20 years does not sound like a lot, but it gets way worse. She replaced the trial by jury that had previously been implemented with the old-fashioned concept of trial by ordeal. Which, trial by ordeal, how familiar are you with that, with, uh, with some of the stuff that they would be talking about, like in the case of medieval Europe, like when they would do stuff for witches and that kind of thing? I'm going to be really honest with you. I've never heard trial by ordeal. Oh, shoot, I've never really? heard of it. Okay, no. um, this is, this, okay, well, it's bad. It's bad. Um, there are many different ways that you could judge someone and whether or not they are innocent. And one of the ancient ideas is we're going to do something horrible to you. And if you survive, then that was the will of the gods. And that means you're innocent. That's trial by ordeal. So what she did is she would implement a type of punishment test in which a person would be made to drink the tangina plant's poisonous juice. The trial by tangina involved eating three chicken skins followed by the toxic tangina nut or kernel. Then, Ranavalona would induce vomiting in the person, because that, that's what was meant to happen. If all three of the skins that that person ate came up, then that person was considered innocent. If the opposite happened and only one or two of them came up, then that meant that the person was guilty. This method was used by Ranavalona to test the loyalty of her subjects because she could, even without someone necessarily having been accused of a crime, she could just order someone to do the trial to make sure that they were innocent of plotting against her. And if she wanted to remove them, then, oh, lo and behold, very few people ever actually succeeded in this ordeal. Well, that's a surefire way to win every argument. Correct. Yeah, that, that's pretty much I'm how it would work I'm going to implement that in my daily life. I think it Enable, it will enable me to win more arguments without having to use words. Oh, dear I'm not great with those. Yeah. Uh, there, well, there's other methods that you could use. Like she seemed to really have a pension for this other kind of stuff. Uh, as an example, she would have criminals that would be dumped slowly into boiling water and oil or tied down with ropes and then burned alive. She would place people into coffins and some were then buried into holes with dirt being, you know, showered over them. She would follow the tradition of something called Fanopanoma, uh, which is... Fanopoana. Fanopoana. Yeah, I'm definitely butchering that. The gist of which is that it would remove the idea of paying taxes as a form of just monetary compensation and instead replace it with 
service. So like slavery. Slavery, yes. Okay. It is getting harder and harder for me to um, look past her behavior because I was like, go queen. But now I'm like, ah. Yeah. We're covering a lot of terrible stuff. But don't worry, there, there will be a point where it kind of turns around a little bit. Oh, I'm still rooting for her. I'm just saying it's harder and harder for me to excuse her behavior. Yeah. But I'm still a supportive queen. So all of those criminals that she, or quote, criminals that she would have conduct those different tests and different methods where she would arrest people, the oftentimes one would do so specifically so that she would be able to then turn around and sell those people into slavery afterwards, specifically in order to boost the country's economy, because it was a very surefire way that you could bring in hard cash to be able to use for other stuff. So if you weren't being sold into slavery, which involved very brutal conditions, you had to stay far away from home, malnutrition that would then lead to a multitude of other deaths, and the people that were involved in all this were considered to be traitors, victims of war, or worst of all, individuals that did not pay their taxes. That's a little joke in here in terms of government here for administration, which is a whole other thing entirely. I probably shouldn't even say that as a joke. But yeah, if you didn't pay your taxes, you could be sold into slavery. They didn't even get a payment plan. Just like I'll work it off for the course of 30 years. No, like let's say something happened with a farmer or someone who had taken out a loan because they, they had a, a, a crop failure of some kind. Or rather, they took out a loan in order to do something for their crops and then it failed. Well, in order to pay it off, their whole family might then just be sold into slavery. And that could happen. The other big target, of course, during this time was Christians who would be secretly practicing their religion and people would be tortured into revealing the names of possibly practicing Christians as being a threat to the kingdom. And those people would either be outright killed or then sold into slavery. Approximately 20 to 30,000 people lost their lives yearly to these various offenses. Well, you know, they really, there are laws they need to follow. And mind you, she ruled for like what? 30 years or so. So 20 to 30,000 people a year that were either executed or sold into slavery from this over the course of 20 years. That's a lot. That's even 20. She did. She ruled for at least 30 something years, I think. It is getting harder and harder to excuse her. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And remember, 20 to 30,000 people. Yep. Doesn't that affect the economy negatively? Well, you'll kind of see why. Because another part of the targets wasn't necessarily just her own. Uh, Remember how the kingdom didn't control all the island? They only controlled like 70 to 80% of it or yes, so? Yes, yes. Well, the tribes that still existed other than the marina that were living in different parts of Madagascar, they would suffer under her rule as they were independent but subservient then to the queen of Madagascar. And her troops were given free reign to go in on annual pillaging trips of the defeated villages in order to seize as much booty, whether in the form of literal people booty like slaves or just goods the army would be sent on repeated expeditions into these neighboring provinces and would exact harsh penalties against anyone that resisted honestly that actually is the most normal thing that you've described so far correct. because every kingdom did that correct correct this is just one of the things that would end up happening but because they had to be subservient to her mass executions were common those who were spared were usually brought back as slaves. The valuables would be seized in order to increase the wealth of the crown. And over the course of her rule, when this would happen, approximately a million slaves would enter Imarina from the coastal areas over the course of 1820 to 1853. That was the length of her rule? Well, actually, it's slightly longer because I believe she would die in 1861. This is just a million people over the course of 33 years. Actually, yeah, no, she ruled for 40 years. I think if I recall correctly, it was a long time. How have I never heard of her? Well, to be fair, this is just one of those figures that isn't necessarily talked about as much in history. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it up. Now, I've talked about before how she is complex. Yeah. Right. And all I've been listing so far are is basically murder, torture, porn. I understand so why she did what she did. So I'm not, you know. I'm yes. making funny commentary, but I fully understand the scope of what she was dealing with and how hard it was probably to maintain control, especially since at the beginning she took power from the royal family, Correct. having no royal line herself. So I fully understand why this is unfolding the Correct. way it is. And despite all this cruelty that we've been talking about, it wasn't without any kind of gain. Like it wasn't a, it was pretty much a no pain, no gain 
situation because the country would actually end up kind of thriving under her. Because at first, she couldn't really do anything about the Europeans. I talked about how she wanted to get rid of them from the very beginning, but she couldn't get rid of them because they still had a valuable place in society with their little cottage industries and with the trade and with other things that was bringing in wealth. She couldn't just get rid of them outright first. But that situation would change after she made a very shrewd decision to allow a European into her inner circle. So she was still very anti-European, but she understood the political realism of needing the knowledge and technology and skills that could be brought in from the outside. And in her case, the one that she found was this young French fortune hunter by the name of Jean Laborde, who had swum ashore after a shipwreck in 1831. Laborde and Ravalona may also have been, you know, in a little bit of a romantic relationship as well, and possibly it has been proposed that he could have been the father of her son, Rakuto, the future king Radama II. More important was Laborde's breadth of practical knowledge, because this was a guy who, it was like the, a treasure that could be given to a developing nation. He had knowledge of metallurgy, munitions, engineering. He organized the construction of a new factory town called Montasso, some miles away from the capital city. And there he would supervise the manufacture of not only guns and gunpowder for Ranavalona's army, but also soap, silk, ceramics, and any other kind of item that the kingdom previously had to trade for in order to get and now would be able to produce themselves. He directed the construction of an elaborate palace for Ranavalona on a hill that was above the capital city, which was only destroyed by a fire in the year 1995. It lasted a long time. That was the year I was born. Yep, same here. And so Ranavalona now had made a kingdom that was prosperous and powerful. And French forces that were distracted by the political upheaval that they were facing at home in the 1830s, which that is a whole other thing because we're talking French Revolution 2, Electric Boogaloo. They, Why would you call because it Because I have to say that. Every time I say something too, I have to follow it up with Electric Boogaloo. It's Radama 2, Electric Boogaloo. That's her son, all right? I'm going to keep on doing that. That's a thing that will happen. Wait, that's her son? They named him Radama 2? Well, Radama the second. But it was the Frenchman's son. Well, yes, but Which, remember, any children from her are considered to still have been the children of her previous husband. Okay, so if you can say whatever comes to mind... You know that TikTok audio that's like, a white man? No! That's all I could think of when you said a Frenchman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's pretty much how it happened here, right? So, Ranavalona is strong, powerful, and rich now. And the French forces were still distracted by what was going on at home, as I said. And she was regarded by the Malagasy people as a ruler that was being favored by the gods. And now she could turn her attention to the last bits of European influence on the island, the Christian church. See, the teachings of Christianity in mission school that had to be restricted, then banned, and then missionaries began to leave the island or go underground. And in the mid-1830s, after a series of judicial murders against Christians began with an especially notorious incident, the 1836 martyrdom of 14 Christians who'd resisted orders to give up their religion, the rest pretty much had to, as I said, flee or go underground with their teachings. So despite her attempts to resist the West, Rana Valona was actually open to a number of more things than what you would previously think based on her attitude. Because she actually really liked the different ideas of French court and power and culture effectively like because France at this time if you're talking about in the 1800s was still extremely culturally powerful even if England was still or I say Great Britain was actually the most powerful country on earth so when it came to these matters and their style particularly French clothing she had her quarters inside of her court dress up in French clothing that was just something that she ended up using she also kept a battered piano on hand and sometimes would invite visitors to play it. But when it came to economic and political matters, she was very anti-West. Well, I say anti-West, anti-anything that came outside of Madagascar, which in the case of the 1800s, in most places all around the world, you're talking about the Western powers. So she was the West's implacable 
foe. A combined French and English attack on Madagascar in 1849 happened, but it failed miserably as European sailors were surprised by a false-fronted native fort that concealed a way more substantial structure. The struggle between the French and the English troops over a temporarily captured Malagasy flag then contributed to the fact that Ranavalona would have a victory immediately after. A set of 21 European skulls would be mounted on poles and placed all along the shoreline to discourage any future invasions. This event would forever cement Ranavalona's belief that she was divine, or specifically that her power, presence, everything that she did, was blessed by the gods. And in the later years of her reign, this belief and delusion would only get stronger for her because her actions would become more and more violent. As an example, in 1845, she ordered a buffalo hunt, something that would require attendance from all of the nobles at her court. Each courtier had to then bring along a full retinue of underlings and slaves and the expedition grew, apparently, to a size of 50,000 people, all on a massive hunting expedition. Imagine this, imagine this. The Colosseum of Rome could fit around 50,000 people inside of it. So as many people would, that would fit inside the Colosseum of Rome are now marching effectively through the rainforest on a hunting expedition to hunt buffalo. To hunt buffalo? To hunt buffalo. Like the amount of people that could fit in the Coliseum. Yes. Did they get a lot of buffalo? No. Did they lose yeah. all the buffalo? They lost to the buffalo. I'm going to kind of explain this. See, How do you lose to buffalo? You just shoot. Wait, they, they didn't have guns. So you bow and they arrow did. them. How do you lose to buffalo? Here's the problem. Um, so you're talking about 50,000 people that are moving through a forest. There is no way to do this cleanly. And with all the baggage, with everything that they would be trying to bring with them, it was a nightmare. So Ranavalona commanded that a road be built as the group proceeded in order to smooth her process. The expedition then devolved into disaster as it went on because it departed with very little planning. There was no food supplies for the workers other than what they could get from villages along the way. And even no women had were forced to pay stupid prices to get simple rice. As road builders would fall ill and die, they'd be replaced by fresh recruits. Quote, the royal road was littered with corpses, most of which were not even buried, but simply thrown into some convenient ditch or under a nearby bush. In total, around 10,000 men, women, and children are said to have perished during 16 weeks of the Queen's hunt, and in all of this time, not a single buffalo was shot. That is somehow much worse than I thought it would have been but despite all of her varying atrocities that she may or may not have committed during this time the country that she ruled did manage to thrive that all being said like her father-in-law Ranavalona wanted her countrymen to be self-sufficient and despite the harsh actions that she took she did succeed eventually even Ranavalona's son though Rakoto and her confidant Laborde they would end up turning against her and they would conspire with a French shipping merchant by the name of Joseph Lambert in order to drive her from power. They just couldn't really take it anymore. The plot, which was launched in 1857, was well documented by this Austrian world traveler by the name of Ida Pfeiffer, who was visiting Madagascar at the time and accidentally, I guess, became entangled in the entire intrigue. But Ranavalona, with the help of some spies within her court, ended up foiling the plan and none of it played out. So Rokoto would end up surviving the resulting purges that she would launch and would plead for the lives of his European friends who would try to help him. And Ranavalona, at the time, seemed to agree with him. But her actual plan, in order to send a message, it seems, was to send them on a forced march through malaria-ridden swamps, and many of the conspirators, as a result of this, died. But Laborde would actually survive and he later would return to Madagascar as an advisor to Radama II after Ranavalona's death on August 16th, 1861. She sent them on a forced march through malaria-ridden swamps? Yes. Death marches have been a common method of execution in a hands-off method throughout history. It's happened repeatedly. At one point, we're probably going to need to cover the Japanese death march that they had used. 
The one in which a whole bunch of British and United States POWs got marched through the swamps there in Burma and died. I've never, I mean, apart from, you know, the march, it was the Trail of Tears. Yeah. I've never. That was a forced march. Forced marches have been done throughout a lot of different stuff in history. I've never heard of it being used. That is, wow. Yeah, exactly. Wow is probably the best way that one could really begin to describe it because you see a lot of. Yeah. It's so smart. It's like, oh no, they marched here and they died. Oopsie. It's yep. like a surefire way to execute someone without ever getting your hands technically dirty. Exactly. That's really one of the ideas behind it. And it's such a horrible thing to do to people that uh, your enemies see what happens and the way that the people uh, end up dying. Not good. That's awful. Yeah. But genius. But as we said, she would rule until she would die peacefully in her sleep. August 16th, 1861, she would die in her sleep at the Manja Kamidana Palace. Kamiadana. Kamiadana. Probably messing up a lot of the names in here, but I'm truly trying my best. But they are a little bit longer from what you'll see. And so she dies peacefully, despite all the things that happened in her life, despite everything that she did. Age 79, peaceful death. And people not only were sad about this temporarily, they mourned her death in great honor for about nine months. The aftermath rituals involved the slaughtering of animals and distributing the meat to the people in a kind of charity, I guess you could say. I think if I remember the, I read the number, like anywhere between nine to 12,000 animals were slaughtered during that time and just the meat distributed out to the people. So they mourned her because things were, I guess, better for the people who weren't being executed under her reign? Yeah, the Life was definitely better for the people that weren't being persecuted and executed and tortured and all these other things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Again, complex history. Kind of what ends up happening. I love, I love that because, you know, everything you listed at the beginning, awful. But then also she did really good things. And then also people were sad. Yep. So it just shows that historical characters, people, and I mean, honestly, you know how, how, how many times you've, have you met a person that you're like, that person is genuinely 100% the best person I've ever met? Like, does that ever Never. happen? No. Like my best friends on earth, I would die for them. Me too. Like, I'm not great. They would die for me. But are we 100% the best people on earth? Exactly. Everybody and, does something that you're like, ooh. And that is one of the key points for why I wanted to bring up something like this and show the complexity of the situation and why it's not just, oh my God, this thing is awful because that's what ends up happening. I will say this though, the, 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 when she died, there's this other little, very funny last little part here. I say funny, it's morbid. It's morbidly funny, but in a very ironic twist of fate for this anti-imperialist queen, a, uh, a spark ended up igniting an explosion during her funeral that ended up killing thousands of people and destroyed a bunch of royal buildings nearby. Are you joking? Nope, that actually happened. Even after her death, she is still associated with the loss of life because during her funeral, there was a big boom and thousands of people died. Are we sure that happened? Yes. Or is that like a myth? No, that happened. That actually happened. <laughs> you think about this. There have been multitudes of events in which, let's say, during a concert or some other kind of thing, where people get stampeded to death. I'll give you this as a prime the example. South Korea, the, um, was, it wasn't a South Korea, I think, around Halloween, where a yeah. bunch of people died in that crowd surge. Correct. As an example, and this is a really stupid event, when William the Conqueror conquered England, it was after his coronation when he was crowned that as people were shouting, like, in celebration of the king, a misunderstanding seems to have taken place where they thought the crowd was turning against them and caused the king to launch punitive raids charging out into the crowd and people got slaughtered. You're making that up. No. You're making that no. up. No. I think somebody made that up. No. I don't think that's a real thing. History is pretty stupid sometimes. That's so sad. Yeah. Personally, I'm never going to a political rally ever in my life. Hey, they can be pretty dangerous. And you're talking about feelings where people get really like, uh, what's the word? Pent up is not the right term because that's already what they Passionate. were. Passionate. There you go. That's probably the way more accurate term there. But yeah, that, that's, uh, that's, that, that's how that went. So her son, though, Prince Rokoto, would succeed as the queen as King Radama II. And then soon after, the traditionalist, tyrannic, and extremist policies that she had 
were withdrawn under her son's reign as he went back to open up the country again. Was he a good king? For a short time. Sort and of. then what happened? He got assassinated. That's what happens when you open up the country. Yeah. Uh, though it was his own, some of his own like advisors. And I can remember how whole thing about pissing off the traditionalists. If I recall correctly, he got assassinated by a faction within court that were some of the diehard traditionalist supporters of his mother. I do not understand the having a court because, yeah, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer type thing works. But then if your enemies are close, did you watch The Great? You watched The Great. Where they tried to, well, his own wife tried to kill him. Yeah. And then they were like, oh, who did it? And then everybody in the court was on their question Mm -hmm. because there's so many people who could. Yeah, it's how you maintain power. Because think about this. Regional nobles, the ones who are quite powerful, where do you want them to be? Where you can see them? Or out in the countryside, potentially with their armies and their power? I would keep them in a separate house, for starters. Maybe right outside my house. That's kind of what Versailles was in France, except it was a room. Versailles was a giant square. (laughs) Yeah, but that's also what would happen with court. So people would go and they'd visit court. and Well, I mean, there's different rules, to be fair, for different castles all around the world and exactly where people situated. But... That was like the idea of court was that they were usually kept close by. Usually what would end up happening, like let's say you have a capital city, there would be a noble's quarter where a noble would have their home that was, you know, out in whatever territory they owned. But then they would also have a house in the city where they would stay so that they could be at court. I have a question for you. Were there any leaders across any culture in any country throughout history where they locked themselves away and refused to even have servants? Refused to even have service. Like, was there a monarch that was so paranoid? Because that's what I would do. Where they absolutely had nobody except for maybe like the royal guard. That's an excellent question. I'd be doing my own dishes like nobody's going to kill me. There have been several people that were reclusive. Uh, Which one was the guy? There was that one French king that basically refused all contact with people. Though he did end up actually going out to different things. But he believed that he was crazy and he believed that he was made out of glass. So he just wouldn't interact with people and he would have base panic attacks thinking that he could be shattered at any given second. Why would you pick the one that sounds the most like me? <laughs> Why would you do that? That's actually quite rude. Gabby, just because your family speaks French does not mean I'm calling you French. <laughs> but the panic attack. Bro. The panic attack might be a little bit closer to be fair. Yes. Okay, but- finish the story. We got really sidetracked and it was all my fault. I'm so sorry. You're you guys. fine. This is just a bit, as we talked about here over the course of the idea of complex characters, is that in the modern world, this queen and her reign is considered to be controversial at best. Most people, particularly from a number of the Western sources, condemn her as a power-hungry and tyrannical leader, while others would go and appreciate that she did strive to preserve the ancient traditional Malagasy culture. Regardless of their feelings towards her domestic policies and how it is that she treated people, Many people still consider that she was a woman of immense strength and a remarkable figure in Malagasy history. As a female ruler, Rana Valona was very aware that she was going to face trouble from people that did not want to be ruled by a woman. We have covered this many times in history, how the women who end up taking charge in country are usually one of two extremes, very bad or very good. And I'm not talking about things in terms of morality. I mean that their rules are either short-lived and chaotic and fall apart, or they are one of the strongest rulers that you typically see in countries, specifically because of the methods that they have to employ in order to make sure that they maintain power. Because people are constantly questioning them. So I understand that kind of in like a smaller scale, I guess, because growing up, my dad would always tell us, my brother and I, that we had to try, like we had to be the best of the best, right? Yes. And then my brother, he could be good, but he can still goof off. But I had to be the best of the best. And you saw me during school forever. Where, and even at my job where I literally would let my, like if I thought that I was slacking at any point where someone can say, hey, she's not doing something right or she's slacking off, I would lose my mind. Mm-hmm. Like I would always strive to be the best, the best because You know, I'm a girl Mm -hmm. in science, which there are a lot of girls in science, but not in my specific area of science, I guess. And then on top of that, you know, I'm a minority, Mm -hmm. which tends to get a little bit more scrutinized in certain areas. So I just always had to work. I always felt like I had to work, especially in college, the college I went to. 
You felt and like then, you had to be an example. Exactly. I always had to like strive to be better so that no one can think, oh, she's slacking off or she's just coasting by or like they're just giving her stuff because she's black and a girl because people would say that. Mm-hmm. So I would literally kill myself trying to prove that I'm worthy of like scholarships or opportunities. My position at my job, just trying to prove, even if it was just to myself that I'm just like able, capable and like worthy, I guess. So. Completely understandable. And that feeling is something that is translated to quite a number of people across history, which is something that I, again, I've talked about. And it's why I really wanted to bring her up. There's even a speech that she gave. This is a segment from it during her coronation where this is what she had said. Never say, quote, she is only a feeble and ignorant woman. How can she rule such a vast empire? I will rule here to the good fortune of my people and to the glory of my name. I will worship no gods but those of my ancestors. The ocean shall be the boundary of my realm, and I will not cede the thickness of one hair of my realm. In other words, she is a staunch traditionalist that is going to honor her ancestors and her wa- the ways of her people, and she will not give a single inch, not a grain of sand to any outside force. She would maintain the sanctity of Madagascar, or at least of the Marina Kingdom. She was strong. She had to be strong. And though she was cruel and did terrible things, she did it specifically in order to maintain her absolute authority and the will of her country. It's a complex figure. And that's specifically why I wanted to talk about her today. But that's the end of the episode. Wow, thank you for teaching me all of these horrible torture methods. I really don't like how you're saying that to me while looking at me. It was, a, it, it was a really interesting episode. I'd never heard of her before. Yeah. And I'm sure that a number of people haven't either, which is why I really love bringing attention to these kinds of things. And I think that there are a lot more figures over the course of history that we'll be able to touch upon as complex characters, especially since that is the new series that we are doing here on uh, YouTube, which for anyone that is listening right now, we just released an episode today as of recording this here on, what's today, the 13th of June, yeah. 2023. Yeah. We just released the first episode of the complex characters. That is about uh, Joseph Bruce uh, uh, MJ. Why am I forgetting his last name? Imse? MJ? It's the guy who Esme? was the- Ismay. He was the, the highest ranking officer to survive the sinking of the Titanic and was vilified by the media as a villain. But the portrayals in media, in the news, in movies are false because there's no evidence supporting what happened and he's just been character assassinated for years. Sometimes I wonder if it's better to just be a person that nobody writes about because then you can be in control of your own story. Like presidents or political figures, any sort of like leader. Yeah. Actors, actresses. I think it's just better that if you're a nobody, nobody can control your story. Because you can even write your own. On a smaller scale as like an influencer, I've literally read theses on like how me not revealing my exact ethnicity is affecting the black community. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And then there's like entire comment threads on my videos where they're like, well, I think she's this. Well, I think she's this. And I think you shouldn't be assuming. And I'm like, ah, all of you are awful. So. You know, it's just... It's one of those things that happens, and I completely understand it. It's like every time I talk about anything to do with any other part of history, there's always going to be someone that is going to nitpick, because I know that I can get things wrong. I I do. I have read an entire thread where they genuinely think you're holding me hostage, and I don't actually love you, and we haven't been together for so long, and I'm like, what is wrong with you? Who has the time? It's okay. They, They can never tell on the podcast, because we all know that secretly there's a guillotine blade that is waiting up in the roof of the ceiling right here, immediately above your chair while you're sitting here recording this. But I mean, come on. Was holding anybody hostage. I'm holding you hostage, bro. (laughs) And on that note, I think it's time we go ahead and end this episode. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) I appreciate all of you. You are some wonderful hoes. And I love you all very much. Sorry if this episode was particularly unhinged. Also, we would typically have a family history for you, but I'm kind of afraid to go into the uh, email account. So we will be working towards passing that off to our producer soon because I'm if I read one more hate email, like my sanity is hanging on by a thread. One singular thread. So. So thank you, everyone. I hope you all have a good rest of your day and goodbye. Bye. Bye.